So how do you think that, yeah, how do you think cities, Nashville, but also cities in general can balance growth versus um, practically developing in a, in a beneficial way? Well, number one, we're going to have to change what we're doing because if we don't, we're going to be another Atlanta mm-hmm. and another Houston and another Los Angeles. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Fireside Chats for part two of a three-part series of an interview that I did with Don Kintner about all things cities. In part two, we discuss traffic, suburbs, why America is a suburban nation, and what attracts people to urban versus suburban neighborhoods. And we also discuss a lot in the latter part of the episode, the ACSM American Fitness Index. These are statistics about cities in America and what determines their health versus their lack of health and how cities can focus their energy on creating a healthier environment for their inhabitants. I've added a link to the American Fitness Index statistics so you can follow along as you listen or you can look into it after the episode. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode. Be sure, as always, to check out the Roosevelt Group on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at the Roosevelt Group, as well as our website, www.roosevelt-group.org, and give some love on the podcast Instagram at Fireside Chats Podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you in part three. I'm going to introduce a topic called induced traffic. So when I moved here in the 70s, I-24 was just a four-lane interstate, two lanes each way mm-hmm. between here and Murfreesboro. Mm-hmm. And it was packed. Now it's an eight-lane and it's packed. Yeah. It hasn't changed. <laughs> no. I mean, it's it, you know, it's just double the traffic. Induced traffic, even traffic engineers recognize this concept. Whenever you widen a road or create a new road, you you create more room for more traffic and people just drive more miles, more more cars, more miles, more frequently because mm-hmm. it's free. Yeah. All right. But you have to afford a car and gas. You have to afford a car and gas. Right. So, but what we have to do um, is think outside of the box. Okay. And we have to think of other ways to strategize to make people think of other ways because the easiest thing to do is jump in your car and get on the freeway, mm-hmm. okay, even in heavy traffic. Um, but can we think in other ways? Maybe some cities have instituted, uh, London, I think, has done this. You're in, mm-hmm. the, you're in the UK. You're probably familiar with this. It's called congestion pricing. Singapore does it. I read about it, but I haven't heard about it. Okay, congestion pricing. I'm, I don't know if any cities in America do it yet or not. But I know Singapore does it, and London does it, probably other cities all over the world. And that is where you charge people more money to drive into the center of the city at certain times. Mm. How do they charge, though? Oh, you know, now it's all high tech. you got a box in your car and they, you know, oh, certain like, times like of the tolls, day they, huh? Paying tolls. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, or you could have toll lanes. Mm-hmm. And that's one way, you know, charge people, charge people for driving at peak times. Yeah. So that's another, you know, choice lanes or toll lanes or congestion pricing. So there are creative ways uh, to still use our highways, mm-hmm. but not keep adding lane miles because the more miles you, the, the more lanes you add, and the more roads, it's just going to fill up because more people 
start moving out there now. So now you have all these subdivisions out in Smyrna and Laverne and Murfreesboro. Mm -hmm. So you got more people living out there, more cars, more driving, and uh, everything is spread out. So that means people can't even walk to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. So here's another thing. Transit nodes. What is a transit node? Do you know what a transit node I don't. is, Ward? Mm -mm. Okay. A transit node. All right. Um, okay. What, what do you think it is? I think it's um, a center where transportation comes together. So that would be like a train station or an interstate um, overpass where you can switch interstates, right? Yeah. And when it comes to transit nodes, see... People in Nashville talking about, well, we'll never have a train here. We can't have subways. Well, probably not subways because we have to carve through limestone. Mm -hmm. So Nashville never. But it doesn't matter whether you have a train or a bus. The important thing is that you run whatever transit it is on a regular basis. We're trying to build a transit node in Green Hills right now. Have you noticed the, the new transit station in front of Hillsborough High School? Yeah. Okay. It's beautiful. That's a transit node. All right. What we need to do is fortify around that transit node with more density, mm -hmm. which they are. They're building higher structures in Green Hills. So, so more people live there and they have the opportunity to walk to the transit center mm -hmm. and get on a bus. Mm -hmm. OK, so why can't we build transit centers uh, in Laverne? OK, so you can't run a train out there, although their their train tracks go out there. If we can get enough room on the CSX train lines to run a, a passenger train which is in the future maybe. Mm. Um, but even if you don't run a train out there, you can run buses out there on a regular basis, stop at the transit node, build build up the density around the transit node, mm -hmm. build apartments and condos, whatever, affordable housing, whatever, mm -hmm. um, and build up that density around that transit node, allow uh, park and ride stations so that people that are too far to walk or ride a bike, they can drive their car to the transit node, park for free, hopefully, mm -hmm. or for a small fee. And then ride the bus. The key to transit, two things, key to transit, okay? Number one, enough density around the transit node to make it work, mm -hmm. uh, which most experts say it's about 10 housing units per acre to okay. make it work. Most neighborhoods in, in Nashville, I mean, Nash, did you know Nashville has the largest uh, uh, lar largest lot size of any city in the country? I remember that from our driving tour. Yeah. Yeah. Has the largest lot size of any uh, sizes of any city in the country, mm -hmm. which is beautiful. You know, we love our huge lots in Nashville. Yeah. I, we live on two acres. I love it, you know. <laughs> so I'm not belittling that, but that's why mass transit doesn't work in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I live out in Oak Hill by Radnor Lake. It's too far to walk. You'd have to walk too far by, you know, and by huge lots to get to a transit stop. They mm -hmm. used to have transit stops on Franklin Road. They quit running the bus out there because no one was riding it, mm -hmm. okay? But if you build up a transit node, maybe like around Green Hills, build it up a little bit more, uh, Laverne or Smyrna, Murfreesboro, whatever, uh, Spring Hill, Franklin, um, and then run buses in, in the absence of trains, you know, run buses out there, okay? If you have enough density and frequency of service mm -hmm. transit works best that's why i love chicago transit you can go and stand on the train platform and that train you don't even have to look at a schedule transit works best when you don't have to consult a schedule yeah. you can just go stand on the platform and you know the train's going to come every eight or ten or 15 minutes mm -hmm. it works best if it's uh, we call it headways that's the amount of minutes between uh the the stop okay 
So if you have short headways, usually less than 20 minutes. So if the bus comes between every 15 and 20 minutes and you have an adequate density for that transit stop, you can make transit work. And you don't have to build, you don't have to go through all the thing of building fancy trains and all that sort of thing, which is very expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, trains are sexy and trains are nice. I hope we get one, you know. But um, until then, that's, that's at least, you know, 10, 15, 20 years away, right? Yeah. So between now and then, we can build up transit nodes. Yeah. And run buses. Yeah. We know how to run buses. They're building a new, do you know about the new transit stop they're building up in North Nashville? It's about 35% oh. complete. Oh, up really? On, yeah, up on Clarksville Highway. Okay. Okay, that'll be a transit node. And they really need it up there because that's the area of town where a lot of people need to ride the bus because mm-hmm. they don't own cars. See? So we have to think creatively, and we have to think in ways that will benefit people and benefit a community. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so yeah, transit will work even in a city like Nashville if we think creatively. It's so, never going. We're never going to be a Chicago or New York or anything like that because we don't have the density. Our density is only thirteen hundred people per square mile, and New York's density is twenty nine thousand people per square mile. Yeah. So we'll never have what New York has, and we don't need to. No, but uh, yeah, because also New York. I mean, one reason it's so dense is because the land is limited. Right. And right. here we don't necessarily have limited land in that same sense. Um, before so, we leave this topic, I just uh-huh. want to, I want to, this is a very interesting correlation, okay? Uh, population density related to mass transit use, mm-hmm. okay? I'm going to go from the most dense, uh, the most dense uh, six cities, okay? New York's the most dense at 29,000 people per square mile. Mm-hmm. San Francisco's next with 17,000 per square mile. Boston is next with 13,000 people per square mile. Chicago is fourth with 11,800 per square mile. Philadelphia is next at 11,200, and Miami is the sixth with 11,100. So, and that directly relates to their transit use. New York has the most transit use at 55.6%. San Francisco's next with 36.3%. Boston's next at 32%. Chicago's next at 28.4%. Philadelphia is next at 25.5%, and then Miami falls down to 79 But it all goes in a one-to-one correlation. Mm-hmm. So the higher the density of a city, the greater the transit use. Can you imagine? New York has over half of their people riding mass transit. Can you imagine that in Nashville? Man. What's our transit usage? Do you know what our transit usage is? Probably very low. 3.1. Oh, no. 3.1 of our yeah. people. But it's up from 2016. Uh-huh. It, it was only t- uh, 2.1 wow. in 2016, so we've gained a percentage point, but it's still way below what it could be. Mm-hmm. But it's because our density is so low. Yeah. Right? So what do you think, one of the the chapters that you sent me to read, it was um, it was in the chapter, Why Has Sprawl Spread in, what was the name of that book? Um, that's the book on, let me see it for a second. It's by Edward Glazier. Triumph oh yeah, yeah. That's that's. This is called the book called. Uh, um, is Triumph of the City. Triumph right? of the City. Yeah, Triumph yeah. of the City. Right. Um. Mm-hmm. So the author talks about Houston versus New York City for a significant portion of the chapter, and talks about why people choose to live in the suburbs versus in like a downtown, very urbanized New York type setting. Um, or you don't even have to compare Houston and New York for that. Just 
urban versus suburban. Um, so when we're thinking about Nashville and how sprawling it is to these outer towns that really aren't suburbs, they're their own towns. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about Smyrna, Murfreesboro, things like that. Um, but then you also look at the efforts to, to create density, whether it's around a transit node, like in, um, in Green Hills or in Belmead, they just proposed to build that, um, residential area right. where the Belmead Plaza is right yeah, now. Where are you close to where you live? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or if we think about gentrification, like in Germantown, for example, um, or East Nashville, what do you think the the problem with that is that people who live on two acres of land and love their yards and have children and they want the kids to be able to play outside or go to great schools in those areas and they don't mind driving an hour to work every day. What do you think the odds are of people being attracted to live in denser, more urban areas? And how, how can the city get people to be willing to live in those areas? Do they have to be young people? Do the houses just have to be really affordable? Like, what is, what's going to attract people and change the culture from suburban dominant to more urban and more dense? Okay. Well, number one, um, and by the way, all, all of you listeners, I highly recommend uh, the book that I, I copied a uh, chapter or two for, uh, for Ward. It's called The Triumph of the City, and I highly recommend that book. Mm-hmm. It gives a, huge, a great overview of our issues, our urban issues. I bought it. Oh, did you buy it? Yeah. Oh, good. I'm only I'm only on the first chapter, but okay. I'm gonna read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you'll love it. And, it. and it uses you're 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 living in the UK, so it ha- uses lots of examples also from uh, other nations. Mm-hmm. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Um, so, number one, if the suburbs are popular for lots of reasons, okay. Mm-hmm. Number one, you get more house for the money. Mm-hmm. Okay, get more house for the money. Um, in the past, doesn't have to be this way, but in the past, the school systems generally, not every city, uh, but generally suburban school systems outrank and outrival urban school systems. There's some, some notable examples of that. Oklahoma City, for example, has a great public school system in its city. But you take it all in mass, at least the perception, mm-hmm. at least the perception, whether it's true in fact or not, at least the perception is that suburban schools are better than urban schools. Some of that has a racial component to it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so remember, we talk about history of cities. When we ever talking about cities and their development, at least in our country, uh, we can't leave out the racial part of it because that plays into a lot of this, a lot of this whole thing we're talking about. Um, the redlining in certain neighborhoods, and we can get into that later if you want to. Yeah. Um, but that's one thing, okay? So more house for the money, the perception of better schools, mm-hmm. whether that's true in fact or not, the perception of lower crime rates, which in some cases is true, in some cases are not. You can't just go on uh, myth and, well, our crime rate's lower, you know. There's some, I'm not going to go into specifics because I'll have people calling in and complaining but uh <laughs> there's some suburban areas around nashville where the crime rate is higher than the city itself wow really but yeah you know the perception is not that yeah the, the perception is not that so you have to look at your individual neighborhood mm-hmm. for a while for a long time east nashville had a horrible reputation for crime and now it's improved a lot yeah they still have crimes there but they have crimes in brentwood too mm-hmm. which one hits the news media i'll let you guess 
East Nashville. Which one? Yeah, I'll let you guess. Definitely. I mean, so we have to play. You know, we have to look at the actual facts. If you're before you move to a neighborhood, go online and go to the uh, go to the city and, uh, websites and stuff, and look at the actual facts mm-hmm. of the educational systems. You know, a lot of the urban schools in Nashville are exemplary. Martin Luther King Magnet School, Hume Fogg, you know, mm-hmm. East Literature Magnet. I mean, there's lots of good. We're, we just opened a new high school in Bellevue called, you know, James Lawson. Um, it, I think next week will be the fir- first time. Really? Yeah, students. I think school starts next week in Metro, so yeah. they'll be going there for the first time. Wow. And by the way, they're running a bus out to it. Yay! Yay! See, that could uh, be a metro bus? Yeah. Wow, yeah. Yeah, you'll be able to ride number 50 from downtown along Charlotte. And then when you get to the Walmart in Charlotte, you transfer over to the 70. Uh-huh. And it'll go down out Charlotte to Old Hickory Boulevard and then down to Highway 70 and out to um, Jim's Lawson. That's far. Yeah. That's really far. But see, that's a new. that could be a new <laughs> transit node. Yeah. You know, let's yeah. create a transit node. Um so you you have to think we have to think in those terms. Why have not why haven't we created a transit node out there by the Walmart? I mean they're they're building a lot of new housing along Charlotte, but they could even, you know, do more to actually increase that, you know, those nodes. Mm-hmm. So anyways, those are things to think about. Now, as far as the uh, again, the big draw to the suburbs is housing prices. Mm-hmm. Because you can get more house for the money on a bigger piece of land. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's your thing, and you know, then you need to live in the suburbs. Everything's a trade-off. Yeah. Okay. You can get more house for the money, and maybe maybe have a lower crime rate, and maybe have a better school system. But you're going to have to drive an hour in you know wall-to-wall traffic to get where you want to go. And not only that, see, mo- most trips we we always just talk about work commutes. But most traffic and most trips are not to work. It's for other reasons. Music lessons and recreational and shopping. And that's why the area around Cruel Springs is has the worst traffic in Metro Nashville. Mm-hmm. You know, um, So I'd much rather drive downtown. At least you have some alternative routes. Yeah. At least you, you, know, you can turn off and, and you have a grid. You have a grid. You can utilize the grid. Yeah. Cool Springs. No grid. Uh-uh. You're stuck on old, you know, you're you're stuck on Cool Springs Boulevard or yeah. Mallory Lane or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so you might be able to whip through a parking lot or something, but that's about it. Um, so it just depends on you know everything's a trade-off. Um, if you want to live downtown, then it's going to cost you more money in the Gulch or Germantown or whatever. Um, you might be able to. Might not be able to park right in front of your house every day because if you don't have a garage, then somebody might be parked on your street. Mm-hmm. You might have to walk a little bit to get to your front door. But you can also walk to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And you can walk to the Germantown Cafe. And by the way, you can walk to the Titan Stadium or to First Horizon Park and watch a baseball game. Mm-hmm. And you can walk to the Tennessee State Museum and the Farmer's Market. And you could even walk downtown and to your job. Or ride your bike downtown to your job. You don't even have to get on a bus because you're close enough to. So everything has its trade-offs. It just depends on what you want for you and your family. And suburban living is is what people want. Some people want, um, but it's interesting that it is a result of transportation choices that enables people to do that. So you take European cities. Yeah, they have suburban, you know, sprawl, too. Mm -hmm. But it's not near the degree that ours is. No. And they have 
mass transit that goes out to the suburbs. They have mass transit that goes out to the suburbs. And so they've planned for that. Mm-hmm. They've created their cities to be more compact. They're, I'm always interested when I watch uh, things like House Hunters and House Hunters International, where they show people buying apartments in places like Paris mm-hmm. and London and Rome or somewhere, and you know, in Holland, in, in the Netherlands or something. And these spaces are so small. <laughs> I mean, they're so small, little bitty kitchens and little bitty, you know, sitting rooms and little bitty bedrooms. Uh-huh. And yet that's the way people in Europe live. Yeah. Well, here we have to have gargantuan. So yeah. a lot of it, you know, a lot of it's cultural. I mean, yeah. who wouldn't, you know, that that's so hard for us to, you know, get used to a smaller spaces. You probably discovered that in, in, in England, right? And, and Yeah. I mean. I guess so. I think, um. Yeah, definitely. I've spent I've spent some time in London and lived in studio apartments there just yeah. for like a week or two at a time. And it's fine. I mean, you really don't need that much space. Right. You can acclimate. Yeah. And know. it totally creates a culture shock coming back here. And I'm like, why do people why do need we need all this space? These three jar- acres and 10 bedrooms and these, you know, sweet like, you know, master bathrooms that are like a health spa. Yeah. And yeah. tennis courts, you know. Yeah. Tennis courts and indoor bowling alleys. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean. It's just, we live lavishly in America. Yeah. And we're spoiled. Absolutely. We're spoiled. And if we want to get back to uh, living more compactly, because the bottom line is we're going to have to. Uh, yeah. Because eventually uh, we talk about environmental issues. And I appreciate the podcast you have with the guy that we talked about the downside of electric cars and all that. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is we're going to run out of fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Uh, most geologists think we're already past the peak. Mm-hmm. In terms of resources available, in, in terms of drilling and so forth, we're already past the peak. So eventually, you know, we're going to run out of oil. And unless you're willing to wait another million years for the oil to, you know, <laughs> redevelop, mm-hmm. you know, underground um, by decaying fossil matter and stuff, um, between now and a million years from now, we got to figure out some other way. Yeah. And so, some renewable energy source. I don't care what that is. Wind, solar, water, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, electric cars may not be, you know, because it does cause environmental damage. And you talked with your guest about the uh, human um, uh, impact of that with slave labor and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But we've got to think of another alternative because fossil fuel is not the future. No, we got to we got to come to grips with that. Yeah. And one of the one of the ideas that I really appreciated in all the reading was that was that ideas and innovations happen in cities where people are grouped together and forced to work together and collaborate. I think it's so exciting to think about. Exactly. It's scary. It's scary. But but it is exciting and it, it gives me hope. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and I love that's why I love that book, Triumph of the City, because it's a very hopeful book. It talks about the negative aspects of cities, but it also talks about it's really the only hope for our future as a planet because that's where innovation takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people are going to be, if they understand the downside, see, suburban living has its downside also. And uh, I think the downside of suburban living is going to become more and more uh, evident as the suburbs continue to sprawl and commutes get worse. Yeah. Um, unless we can solve the problem through transit. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can create compact living spaces and mixed use in places that are attractive for people to live at affordable prices, 
the and and create good schools in our urban settings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't think of a much better place to live than living in the Gulch in Nashville and sending my students walking to uh, Hume Fogg or Martin Luther King, which would be both, you know, within walking distance, um, and being able to walk to work or ride my bike. Um, So the the problem is multifaceted and the solution is multifaceted. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't dictate that people move out of suburbia. This is America, and if you try to dictate too much, people will rebel. If you like the suburbs, then live in the suburbs. Okay, but remember, it's a trade-off. Yeah. But I think people in the suburbs need to start paying for their driving into the city. Mm-hmm. You know, because right now they're getting a free ride, except for paying for the gasoline. They're driving on a freeway. Well, let's start a little congestion pricing. Let's start, you know, charging people for using roadways in the city every day at during congestion times. Mm-hmm. And that's fair. Yeah. I agree. That's fair. That's, you know, people don't want to agree with that, but that's a fair use, you know, of if you're going to drive on a freeway, then you should uh, have to pay the cost of what it costs to, to uh, for you to be on that freeway instead of someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I, I want to touch on before we move away from the idea of suburbia in general is how did we, what's the history of the suburbs in the U.S.? How did we get to be a suburban nation? Well, the the main thing was the uh, um, coming of the car mm-hmm. um, in the early 20s. And along then with the car came the, the roads and la- later on the interstate highway system. We didn't really become a strongly suburban nation. We started branching into the suburbs in the 20s and 30s. But boy, it really took off in the 50s in 1954 and onward mm-hmm. with uh, when uh, Eisenhower uh, ha- started the interstate highway system mm-hmm. um, and built all the freeways across America. And after that, um, then suburban people were just able to spread out very quickly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the, the GI Bill after right. World War II. Yeah. 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 The GI Bill that allowed people, we can't forget the importance that housing played in that. Mm-hmm. So... Before that time, most Americans, see this is so, when you look at the stats, it's totally mind-boggling now. Uh, back before the GI Bill, only about, can't remember the exact number, but 10% or 12% of Americans own a house. Mm-hmm. And after the GI Bill, not just the GI Bill, but also the FHA, Federal Housing Administration, that allowed you to get a, a low-cost home loan and a 30-year mortgage. You used to have to put 50% down on a house. So let's say, Ward, let's say you bought a, th- a $300,000 house. That means you'd have to put, uh, what's what's uh, 50% of, uh, you'd have to put $150,000 down. Who, who has that kind of pocket change? I don't. Yeah. But after the GI Bill and after the FHA Home Loan Association, then uh, you could get a uh, 10%, you could put 10% down. And if you're a GI, you could put 5% down. In some In some cases, zero if you were a veteran. Uh, sometimes you didn't have to put anything down. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So but now then you would end up paying a mortgage for the rest of your life, right? Well, it's thirty. It's a thirty-year mortgage. Most mortgages are thirty years. Okay. So, uh, but you know, if you spread out the payments over thirty years, now you can afford to move into a, your own little house in the suburbs. So, and then with the interstate highway system there, you can live further out, have your own little piece of paradise. And so that's what happened o- over. Uh, all over America. Mm-hmm. 
you know. Um, the first really suburban neighborhood was outside of New York on Long Island called Levittown, and the Levitt brothers built thousands of homes, all cookie cutter, all pretty much the same, um, and they built them quickly, uh, mass-produced the houses just like they mass-produced cars, and people moved out to those what used to be potato fields, and that started the post-war housing boom that spread all over America. But it was enabled by both the home loans, but more importantly by the interstate highway system. Because again, transportation dictates how we live. Mm -hmm. If you can't get there, then you can't move to a potato field, mm -hmm. you know, unless they run a train to your potato field. But otherwise you're gonna have to have a road or a car or a freeway or something. Yeah. Um, and then once you build the subdivisions, then everything else goes with it, stores, and department stores and shopping malls mm -hmm. and schools schools and all the other trapments of suburbia that was a very that was definitely an era of um big government involvement with Absolutely. the with the highways with the housing mm -hmm. projects is the government still that involved no right oh yeah yeah i mean it we is? still yeah i mean we still that's one of the problems is a, is a lack of equity in funding um, I mean, we, the, the federal government pretty much subsidized the building of suburbia. Mm -hmm. Um, and now we're stuck with it. Right. Yeah. Um, so now we have to figure out a way to retrofit it in a way because we're going to have to, mm -hmm. again, because of environmental reasons, uh, because we're running out of fossil fuels. Um, what kind of, what kind of community do we want to live to our, leave to our grandchildren? Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the federal government was hugely invested in all those ways. In t uh, what about this? What about the uh, income tax uh, income tax deduction on your home mortgage? How many how many income tax deductions do you get for spending money? I don't know of any. You have to pay taxes for food. You have to pay taxes for everything you buy. But if you are paying on a mortgage, you can deduct that from your income tax. Mm. That's another huge incentive for people yeah. to buy houses. Yeah. I'm not against buying houses. I've always bought a house. It's a good equity. It's a good investment. But again, trade-offs yeah. and unintended negative consequences. That's one of the big terms I taught my urban sociology class, UNCs, unintended negative consequences. And you, you think they are unintended? Most of them. Yeah. Maybe not all of them. But the I'm 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 giving grace to the people. I, I'm I'm assuming they're unintended. Uh -huh. I'm assuming they're unintended. Uh -huh. Okay, we could debate whether some of them are or not. But uh, in the case of the homeowner's interest deduction, um, that's a that's a benefit for you, the homeowner. But it also has its you know negative unintended consequences because you know it it's an incentive to buy a house rather than rent a place. Mm -hmm. And since uh, you don't and you don't get the same. Uh, see, what happened with these home loans is you could get a loan to buy a new house mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s. Guess where all the new houses were being built? Farmland. In, in the suburbs. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, farmland at the time, yeah. Yeah. Suburbs today, right. But so you got an incentive. You got a home loan for building a house in the suburbs or on farmland, but you didn't get the same benefit for renting a house in the city. Mm -hmm. or renting an apartment in the city. Mm -hmm. So the financial incentives, see, the financial incentives for suburbia were huge. Yeah, absolutely. So we always have to remember that. It's been tilted towards suburbs for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. Do you think that would ever change, to be tilted towards cities? 
Well, I think hopefully we're getting back that direction. But you take, uh, and I should have looked up these stats before I came today, but the last time I checked, um, I don't know what the current is, but um, the f transit funding, um, the, the subsidies for highways, it's like close to, I'm going to get in trouble here, but I'm going to guess around $100 billion a year. Wow. And the transit uh, and the funding for transit is like seven or eight billion a year it's like 14 times 14 times difference mm -hmm. 14 times less for transit funding than it is for highway funding so oh, okay wow i mean why why should it be why should uh highways get you know 14 times more funding than mass transit yeah that's that's not right no and, but and we wonder and wonder why people use more highways because more highways are being built and then it's all free but is that from a federal standpoint? Yeah, that's federal. But how can... Okay, so another thing that I read in my reading for this was that um, cities rely on each other growing, but also the transit in between them growing. And mm -hmm. so how would the government be able to invest in individual city transit systems as opposed to highways, which are what connect cities? Well, we need to do both. I mean, the uh, transit funding, uh, you know, like, for example, Nashville is the is one of the 25 largest cities in the country. But you remember from our uh, transportation forum, it's the only largest city of tw uh, 25 largest cities that doesn't have a uh, dedicated funding stream for transit. Yeah. So we need to go about getting that dedicated funding stream for transit. Okay. But beyond that, see, the problem in America in and you can do this in certain places. Um, Europe has an advantage because it's more compact. So you can run trains. You can run high-speed trains. You know, like what's the one between Barcelona and Madrid? It goes like 200 miles an hour. You get there in 50 minutes, you know. Um, we don't ha In America, everything is spread out so much more. But there's certain sectors of America. Think about the East Coast. We could run a fast train between D.C. and Boston and connecting New York and Philadelphia and Baltimore along the way. Um, and you could, you know, may not go 200 miles an hour. I don't know, you know, what the logistics of that would be. Um, but there are certain parts of the country that we could link up better with high-speed rail and would actually be more useful than air travel. Because why would you want to get on a plane to fly from Boston to Baltimore if you could get on a train and be, you know, and not have to wait around in an airport, yeah. you know. But when it comes to going across the country, now you've got a problem because America is so vast. You also could probably link up uh, cities on the West Coast with high-speed rail. Yeah. Uh, between L.A. and San Francisco and uh, Portland and Seattle. Yeah. You'd probably, that would probably work. That would be amazing. Yeah. One time I did take a train from Chicago to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Did I tell you that? No, you hadn't told me, but at one time I took a train from Chicago to Portland. Yeah. So, but it took like three days. Right. It takes long. It takes yeah. a long time. So you have to shorten the distance. You have to invest in the infrastructure in order to have high speed, mm -hmm. high speed rail. Weren't they gonna come out with a train that was like a vacuum, an underground vacuum, between New York and D.C. that was gonna go what, like seven hundred miles an hour or something? Yeah, they've talked about it. I mean, that would be amazing. I saw a documentary on that a few days ago. Uh, the vacuum tube. Mm -hmm. um, that would be so cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, these things are technologically possible. Yeah. The question is whether they're politically and whether the, you have the human, you know, 
uh, will. Yeah, but that was done. that was something that Elon Musk was going to do. So that would be privately funded. Right, that would be privately funded. Yeah. So if we have someone with deep enough pockets that's willing to do that. Uh-huh. But that then you run into risks of of him individual corruption. Right. You know. Yeah. As a w- that doesn't have um the same checks and balances right, doesn't that have the government and would. Right. Yeah. So again, we're talking about uh you know negative and positive you know types of unintended consequences or intended consequences. Um but there are alternatives. We just have to think more. We need to look to other cities and other nations to see what they're doing. And it's going to be different in America. Yeah. But um, I think we need, to, I think we have to improve what we've got, especially in sprawling cities like Nashville, Atlanta, and Houston, yeah. and Phoenix. Um, we've got to come up with a, a better way. Because I can't, I can't imagine what Nashville would be like if we don't do something major with transit i don't care if it's buses and just keep the buses you know i'm tired of the debate about trains you know yeah trains are you know 20 years in the future great if we can get them uh-huh. but uh it's not right practical. now right now csx is filled with you know freight trains and yeah. uh, to be able to run passenger trains between here and murfreesboro means that probably more truck traffic because there'd be fewer freight trains means more trucks so again everything has a negative and a positive but in the absence of trains let's run Run buses on a regular basis. Again, the th- main things that make transit work are den- density of at least 10 units per acre and regular frequent headways, mm-hmm. you know, of 20 minutes or less. That way, if you go to Green Hills and you're waiting on a bus to go downtown, you don't have to worry about schedules. You know you're going to have to wait 15 or 20 minutes and the bus is going to come. That's why transit works so well in places like New York and Chicago. You go and stand on the platform and the it's train so comes. so regular. Yeah. Yeah. Something I'm interested in um, talking about is healthy, this idea of healthy urban communities. Um, so what creates a healthy urban community? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because <laughs> Me too. Uh, for about the last 15 years, we've had an organization called the uh, American Academy of Sports Medicine. Um, and they've put out a report every year. On It started out being the uh, 50 most healthy cities in America, and then they expanded it a few years ago. Now they work at, look at the 100 most healthy cities in America, and uh, they rank both the personal um, health factors, things like uh, health be- certain health behaviors like uh, Percentage that are ex- that have exercised in the past month, mm-hmm. and percent that have met aerobic activity guidelines by the CDC. Do you know what the aerobic activity guidelines are for? That the no, C- I was wondering what they were. It's 150 minutes per week, which okay. r- turns out to be about 20 mi- 22 minutes per day. Does that count walking? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, medium medium aerobic. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that would be fast walking. Um, Moderate, it says moderate intensity aerobic activity, mm-hmm. 150 minutes a week or 22 minutes every day, and then at least twice per week, uh, muscle strengthening exercises, okay? Some weights and stuff like that, mm-hmm. strengthening muscle groups, okay? So if you do that, they look at that. Uh, they look at the percentage of people biking or walking to work, the percentage using public transportation to work, uh, fruits and vegetables uh, intake, even the number of hours uh, that a person sleeps, okay? 
And then, of course, uh, percent smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they look at the health outcomes, okay? Things like obesity and bl- high blood pressure, stroke and diabetes, and mental health rates and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that's the personal health index part. Um, and there's nine health, uh, health behaviors and 10 health outcomes. And then the community or environmental side is six uh, uh, built environment indicators, air quality, bike score, percent with food insecurity, mm-hmm. parks, uh, percent within a 10-minute walk to a park, and a walk score. So I know the question on your mind, Ward, and maybe some other listeners, what is a bike score? How do you determine a bike score? Well, that's determined by the n- amount uh, miles of greenways and uh, or bike paths or bike lanes in a city, and whether not only the number of miles, but do they connect with anything? Do they connect uh, easily with... Uh, with uh, areas uh, with mixed use, mm-hmm. so and with uh, commercial areas, so that you or schools, so you can uh, ride your bike or walk to those areas. Mm-hmm. So we have a bike score and a walk score for both of those things. And then the second part is the recreational facilities: ball diamonds, basketball hoops, playgrounds, rec centers, swimming pools, etc. Um, so that's what this uh, American College of Sports Medicine looks at, and they do a ranking every year. And uh, our listeners would be interested to know that for the last five years running, the city of Arlington, Virginia, has been number one. Mm-hmm. That's so impressive. Yeah. So I want to go to Arlington and see what they're doing because yeah. maybe there's some things that they're doing that we could bring back home. Yeah. I and mean, have you been to Arlington? It's been a while. Yeah. Have you? I um I went to high school in Alexandria. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's right next so door. Right next door. Um, and I mean, I know this for Alexandria. It's connected by um, the metro to the DC and Arlington. Um, and also, it's just very walker friendly. And there's a greenway that goes all the way along the Potomac for like miles from DC all the way out into the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just super user friendly. Yeah. Yeah. And you can drive, you can bike, you can walk into DC or to any of the, of the other kind of more urban neighborhoods in the surrounding area. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, you know, that increases people's activity and their aerobic exercise and so that's going to improve their health score. Mm-hmm. And it's also got a more uh, urban center. It's not just a bunch of houses. It's right. it's apartments and things like that. Right. Um, and a lot of mixed use. Mixed use and density. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Probably has those transit nodes that we've been talking about. Yeah. Close to the stops, close mm-hmm. to the metro stops. Mm-hmm. Probably very intense density around yeah. those areas. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and we look, if we look at, uh, how Nashville has fared. Uh-huh. Um, back in 2016, um, we didn't fare so well. Uh, that was when they were um, comparing us with 50 cities, um, and we came in 46 out of 50. Yeah. 46 out of 50. <laughs> the only in cities that were worse were Oklahoma City, Indianapolis, which ironically is the headquarters for the American College of Sports Medicine. I think that's funny. That is so ironic. Um, um, Louisville and Memphis were the only cities worse than us. Louisville, Memphis, Oklahoma City, and Indianapolis were worse than us uh-huh. in 2016. Uh-huh. Since then, now that we now we're comparing ourselves with 100 cities, and we're coming at number 63. 
out of 100. Okay. So that's better because if we were still 46 out of 50, then we'd be 92 out of 100. Yeah. But uh, so we've improved somewhat. And I did. I, I showed you how we've improved. Yeah. We, we a lot of indicators we've improved in. Some were the same and some we've gone down. And some are new indicators, so you can't really compare. And uh, some were were higher. So for those of you listening, we're looking at um, a chart. And the the columns are personal health rank and score. And it gives, like, health behaviors, health outcomes. Uh, the next one is the best city. And it provides their score on a scale of one, 0 to 100. And then the 100 city average. And then Nashville, where that falls in it. And uh, in a lot of things, Nashville ranks over the 100 city average. Yeah. Which I th- thought was interesting, even though mm-hmm. it's it's in the lower 50 of the 100 healthiest cities in the U.S. Right. In some, in some ways, we've improved, and in some ways, we're above the national average. But then mm-hmm. in some areas, we're so far below, for instance, percent walking or biking to work. Boston has the highest percentage at 19.3, and, uh, and the national average of 100 cities is 4.5. And we come in at a measly 3.1. Yeah, because we it, just don't have the infrastructure right. to support that. But it's better than it was in 2016 because it was only yeah. 1.8 then. Yeah. See, so uh, in the area, in some areas, and look at smoking. The lowest rate is San Francisco. Only 3.8% of people smoke there. The national average of 100 cities is 12.8. But ours is 16.8. But yeah. it's better than it was in 2016. We had the highest smoking rate in the nation at that point at 23%. Do you think that's because Nashville has grown or people are just smoking less? Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. I would guess maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe there's, I don't know, there's been a big push for you know, health uh, education in that regard, um, probably a little bit of that. Because I gave the report in 2016 when I did the first report. I gave a report to the Department of Health, and I saw some anti-smoking ads come out after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it may be the result that people are moving here from more healthy places. Because we have a lot of—see, one of the bright spots in this whole—well, uh, some people might disagree with this, too— but we have a lot of people moving here from more densely populated areas. We have a lot of people moving here from Chicago. We have a lot of people moving here from New York. They're more used to healthy lifestyles, and they're more used to mass transit. Yeah. They're more used to in-town living mm-hmm. and dense living. Mm-hmm. So in answer to your question a while ago about who's moving to the Gulch, it's probably a lot of New Yorkers and Chicagoans and people from that are used to living in intense, uh, high-density urban areas. But why would they be moving to this heavily suburban city if they wanted to stay in urban settings? Well, because the economic opportunities. Okay, that makes sense. Economic opportunities, but the positive side of that is they're less likely to move to the suburbs if they're used to, if they lived in downtown New York and Manhattan or downtown Chicago or downtown Minneapolis, wherever they're coming from, then... Ask, answer your own question. Are they more likely to move to the suburbs or more likely to move to the Gulch? I'd say they're more likely to move downtown or to the Gulch. Yeah, and they, they can probably afford it if they, can, they can afford, afford to it. live in Manhattan. Right. right. Oh, yeah. It's. I mean, the Gulch is cheap compared to Manhattan yeah. or downtown Chicago. Yeah. So we think about the Gulch and some of these downtown areas being so expensive, but it's all relative. Mm-hmm. One thing of note is, uh, and people may not think this is important, but it turns out to be one of the most important factors related to health, healthy economy, a healthy city, is the percent within a 10-minute walk to a park. Mm-hmm. And that is 
According to this, that's hard to believe, 100% of people that live in San Francisco and Boston live within a 10-minute walk to a park. Wait, sorry, say that again. Okay, 100% of the people that live in San Francisco and Boston, uh-huh. in the city, not the suburbs, uh-huh. in the city, these, this is all cities, this is not suburbs, these are cities. Yeah. Okay, 100% of the people that live in the city of San Francisco, California, and Boston, Massachusetts, 100% of them live within a 10-minute walk to a park. Wow. All right. The 100 city average is 71.6. Mm-hmm. So with 100 cities, the average of people that live with a 10-minute 10, 10 walk to a park is 71.6. Mm-hmm. Okay. Our average is only 45%. So yeah. 45% of Nashvillians live within a 10-minute walk to a park. But it's improved from 2016. Then it was only 37%. And is that just for looking at um, like Davidson County, like the urban Nashville Right, that's because Nashville is the city of Nashville is Davidson County. Yeah, because we're a metro government, so it's looking at Davidson County. Okay, which you know kind of includes suburbs. Right, which includes some suburbs like Oak Hill and like Antioch, mm-hmm. and you know, so more spread out areas of Davidson County. So it's not hard to figure why it's only forty five percent, but at least it's gone up eight percentage points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, that is the number one indicator. Between the, and this is in 2016, so I'd have to do a more recent comparison. When I did this comparison in 2016, that's the greatest percentage difference between the 16 most healthy most healthy cities compared to the 15 least healthy cities, and that uh, that's the public uh, the um, per- percent within a 10 minute walk to a park that's uh, for healthy cities. It's 86.7 percent higher than it is for unhealthy cities. So the number one indicator is percent using public transportation to work. Yeah. So that's That's 271% higher for healthy cities than it is for unhealthy cities. Yeah. So this would help us prioritize where to put our money. Totally. If we want to make, if we want to do one thing to make Nashville more healthy, make people or have people, make it possible for people to use public transportation to work. Mm -hmm. That's the number one thing. That's the number one indicator in 2016 between the 16 most healthy cities and the 15 least healthy cities. Mm -hmm. Something I found really interesting when we first met Uh to discuss this was the geographic differences between the between the top 50 healthiest cities and the lower 50 healthiest cities out of the top 100. Mm -hmm. Um, What did you notice there, Ward? It was that it was a geographic difference between a north and south divide mm-hmm. um yeah. yeah i thought that was fascinating but i think that also could be a result of a number of factors of okay so for example uh the top five are arlington virginia madison wisconsin minneapolis minnesota washington dc and seattle washington which are all in the top northern half of the U.S. Right, all northern cities. Yeah, and then if you flip over the page, um, we see Texas, Tennessee, Arizona, um, more Texas, Florida, North Carolina, a lot of southern, in the southern half of the country. Yeah, and if you look at the the least healthy, the, the 10 least healthy, they're all in the south except Detroit, Riverside, California, Lexington, Henderson, Nevada, Memphis, Las Vegas, Louisville, Indianapolis, Tulsa, North Las Vegas, 
and Oklahoma City. Those mm-hmm. are the least healthy. Only one in that list is in the north, and that's Detroit. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a result of a number of factors, being what we were just talking about, public transportation, mm-hmm. uh, parks, parks, and how much the, the governments of those places put money into both of those, mm-hmm. but also just the general climate. You know, I mean, of the north versus the south. In the south, it's hot. Like, you can't really be outside going on a walk or running between the hours of 10 and 4, or else you're going to be extremely uncomfortable during the summer. Right. Do you think that that really impacts it, or do you think it's more just like a cultural thing than a, than a climate issue? Well, it's probably some a climate issue, but look at the top, look at the top fives. I mean... Arlington, Virginia, okay, that's probably a pretty mild winters and stuff. Yeah. And close by it is Washington, D.C., so that's part of the same metro area. But look, Madison, Wisconsin, and Minneapolis, those are cold cities. Yeah. And yet, if you look at the subscores of exercise mm-hmm. and all those things, they're way up on the list. And you go up there in the winter and you got people riding their bikes in snow. and So it's a cultural, I mean, I th- climate probably plays a part, mm-hmm. but um, Portland, Oregon, is a pretty healthy city, but it rains there all the time. Yeah. Same with Seattle. It rains there. Seattle's number five on the list. It rains there even more than it does in Portland. And you go to those cities, and it doesn't matter the rain or shine, people are riding their bicycles. Yeah. I mean, so, again, it's what what you acclimate to and what you're willing to, you know. Um, doesn't bother me to ride in hot weather, but mm-hmm. you're right. Some people don't want to get out and exercise in hot weather. So I think climate probably plays a role, but I think probably cultural and other fact. I think facilities plays a bigger role. Mm-hmm. Do you have facilities? The south, most of the south, doesn't have the the facilities mm-hmm. for biking and walking that they do up north. No, yeah, not at all. So it's infrastructure. I think is going to trump over the climate. That's yeah. my guess. Yeah. Because you look at those healthy cities, some of them have awful weather. <laughs> yeah. You know. They do. Chicago is number 10. It has awful weather in the wintertime. <laughs> so what's interesting is you look at the top 20. Look at the top 20 cities. Mm-hmm. Let's count the number of southern cities in that list. Atlanta. Are we counting it, Virginia? Arlington? Yeah, we're counting all of them, all the way down okay. to number 20. Okay? So, so we got uh, Arlington, Madison. Uh, Madison. I wouldn't. That's not southern. No. Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, I'm just I'm just counting them down. Oh, okay. So we're gonna count we're gonna count them down and we're gonna point out the southern cities. Okay. Arlington, Virginia, Madison, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, Washington D.C., Seattle, Irvine, California, Portland, Oregon, Saint Paul, Minnesota, Denver, Colorado, Chicago, Oakland, California, Boise, Idaho, Boston, San Francisco, Aurora, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver, hmm. Lincoln, Nebraska, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia. That's the first southern city. Yeah. Right? Number 18. Number 18. Mm-hmm. That's the first southern city. Mm-hmm. Jersey City, New Jersey, San Jose, California. All the So the top 20 health, most healthy cities in 2022, mm-hmm. according to this list, you could argue with, with the factors that they use. But, mm-hmm. you know, go ahead and argue with the factors. But according to this list, out of the 20 most healthy cities, only one is in the south. Yeah. Do you think that that divide is because of how the cities? developed time-wise like the the northern cities and what we were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation of cities in the northeast and the midwest that were developed with steamships and then it became trains and they are more 
train-friendly cities um, that are also just older versus cities that were developed as the highways were developed, like Atlanta, like Houston, like Los Angeles. Um, Do you think that it's because of that, just how they developed over time? Yeah, I'm looking at the list. And I'm I'm thinking about the way these cities are built. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them um, probably are more transit-friendly cities. I know some of them are. You could make a case, I think, that the top 20 cities have better transit systems mm-hmm. available to the, the people, mm-hmm. which is going to enable them to walk and exercise. Um, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then if you look at the... The least healthy cities, most of them don't have much mass transit to speak of. Memphis, Lexington, Louisville. I mean, all these cities just have buses as far as I know. Yeah, they're totally, yeah, Yeah. bus and car dependent. If we can get people to exercise more and if by doing that we can get them to be willing to walk to a bus stop and catch a bus at a transit node. Mm -hmm. Are there any cities you can think of that have kind of turned themselves around in that regard and gone from being car dependent to public transit dependent or just using more public transit in general as they've grown? <laughs> in America, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know that much about Europe, but probably we could find better examples in Europe, although they've always been more compact to begin with. Yeah. So they haven't had the issue with suburban sprawl that we have had. The city that comes to mind that's done it the best to this point that I know of is Portland. Um, Oregon? Yeah. Yeah. Because they actually tore down a downtown freeway. How many cities have torn down a freeway? None. None that I know, you know, except Portland. Really? Yeah. Why did it do that? They tore down a downtown freeway and made it into a boulevard. Wow. And then they they have uh, they connected they have a really intricate um, streetcar and uh, um, streetcar system mm-hmm. and rapid not it's not rapid rail but it's a it's like a, a light surface rail? light rail yeah yeah light rail system that goes uh, out to the western suburbs goes out to the eastern suburbs goes out north and goes out south uh-huh. uh, to Clackamas so. And they have a very extensive bicycle network. I was out there riding my bike, and they, you know, and the, you you have to stay off the bike bikeways at rush hour. You'll get run over. Mm-hmm. I mean, these people are mean commuters, and it doesn't matter whether it's rain or shine, they're going to be commuting on their bikes. Yeah. They have bicycle boulevards with their own traffic lights. Oh, I love that. They have that in Copenhagen. Really? It's amazing. Yeah. It makes it it makes it so much more appealing to to ride a bike because you know you're not going to get hit by a car. Right. There's no way. Right. Yeah. The other thing that Portland has done that very few cities have been willing to do is institute what we what's called and this this is an answer to your question of a while ago. Another thing we can do to uh, combat sprawl is create an urban growth boundary. Now mm-hmm. that's really controversial. Yeah. But Americans would be up in arms about that. They are. I cannot imagine. But in Portland, it's worked. Um, and some people in Portland think it's horrible. Again, everything has its positive and negative consequences. Mm-hmm. But it's created. It's urban growth. Do you know? Understand what an urban growth boundary is? Is that that would just be stopping the growth of the city and making it grow up rather than out, right? Right, and pushing development back toward the center. Yeah. So it's creating a big line around the city and saying, you know. 
no development past this point. Mm -hmm. It protects farmland mm -hmm. as well as pushes development back toward the center. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's certainly controversial. And they've extended the urban growth boundary in Portland because eventually you have to extend it. Yeah. Eventually, you know, and then, you know, you have the people crying that, oh, you know, they're densifying our neighborhood and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it does push development back toward the center and it's created a viable downtown in Portland. You know, everything's a trade-off. Yeah, I mean, totally. We have to be, you know, and we have to understand that when, as we build cities in the future, we're going to have to be aware of those trade-offs because mm -hmm. we can't keep doing what we've been doing. Yeah. That's, I think that's the point of this whole podcast is things are going to have to change from an environmental standpoint mm -hmm. um, and just from a logistical standpoint mm -hmm. and from running out of fossil fuel standpoint, you name, you know, you name it. Um Everything has its downside, and like your other guest said about the electric vehicles, we just we can't jump on bandwagons, mm -hmm. but neither can we stick our head in the sand and pretend that it, that we can just keep doing what we're doing. <laughs>